Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. This episode will discuss sensitive and potential triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and trauma, and will contain details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find offensive, disturbing, and or distressing. This episode may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo, and I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. This Friday, May 5th, is National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit Peoples. It is also known as Red Dress Day, which encourages people to wear red in order to honor those who have gone missing or have been murdered. Indigenous women and girls in Canada are significantly more likely to experience homicide or go missing than previously thought, according to a study done by Marianne Pierce and Tracy Peter from the University of Manitoba. They found that indigenous women are 12 times more likely to be murdered or go missing than any other group of women in Canada and 16 times more likely than Caucasian women. Additionally, indigenous women make up 20% of all female homicide victims despite only comprising of being 4% of the total female population while they also experience sexual assault three times more often than non-Indigenous women, and most trafficked people in Canada are Indigenous. The city of Vancouver, British Columbia has a long history of violence against Aboriginal women. In recent years, this violence has been highlighted by the suspicious deaths of three Indigenous women. And the women's lives that I will be honoring today are Ashley Machiskanik, Nadine Machiskanik, and Verna Seymour. This episode would examine the suspicious deaths and explore why they are part of a larger pattern that is often overlooked when it comes to violence against Aboriginal women in Canada. The recent report highlighting the lives and deaths of Indigenous women in Canada is a stark reminder of the injustices they have faced. These stories demonstrate that no one should ever endure substandard living conditions, especially not in such a prosperous county like Canada. It should be the duty as a Canadian to ensure that all members of a society are given equal rights and opportunities so that nobody has to suffer through these tragedies again. They must work together to create better living centers for those who are currently struggling and demand justice for those whose lives were taken too soon. Let's use this episode to inspire all of us to make sure that everyone can live with dignity and respect in Canada. Ashley Nicole Machiskanik was born on November 20, 1987, originally from Saskatchewan, Canada, and is of the Cree Nation. Here's a little bit of information based on the website Cree Indigenous Saskatchewan Encyclopedia, University of Saskatchewan. The proper term in the Plains Cree language is Neowak. 
The Neowag had a long presence in the prairies, beginning with their involvements in the fur trade in 1740. They adapted quickly to using horses instead of canines for transportation and packing goods, which allowed them to travel further distances and become more efficient traders. Together with other indigenous groups such as the Salto and Asinoboan, they traded with both French and English settlers during this time period. The Neowak developed new methods of farming that helped sustain their communities over time despite ever-changing environmental conditions, while also being renowned storytellers who pass down traditional tales from generation to generation today. Despite having been forced by Canadian government's westward expansions in the 18th and 19th centuries to relocate from their traditional homelands, they remain a vibrant part of Canada's history. Ashley's cousin Mona Woodward described Ashley as a very happy, bubbly, generous girl. She had a very difficult upbringing, living in foster homes until the age of 12, when her mother brought her to Vancouver to escape. Vancouver police veteran and now well-respected outreach worker Dave Dixon described Ashley as a little sweetheart. She was just another typical kid that was in the care of the ministry. The former constable also said, quote, I've known Ashley since she was 15. She was an attractive, quiet young woman, and there is absolutely no way on earth that she committed suicide by jumping out of a fifth floor window of Regent Hotel. Ashley Machiskanik was 22 years old when she fell from the fifth floor of Regent Hotel in Vancouver's downtown east side on September 15th, 2010. Ashley's mother, Brenda Strongarm, along with advocates, neighbors, and family members believe someone pushed their daughter out of the window of the Regent Hotel. Ashley's death was ruled a suicide by the police, but Dave Dixon, a former police veteran, and her friends and family believe she was pushed out of the window due to an unpaid drug debt. When Ashley fell, she landed on her back which is suspicious. One witness claims the person threw her shoes out of the window after she fell, which also implies she was thrown out. Quote, Violence against women down here, downtown Eastside, is worse than ever. It's at an all-time high, end quote, said Mr. Dixon. In 2016, Ashley's cousin, Mona Woodward, said Ashley's family members are still grieving. Mona visited the alley where Ashley died to say prayers and lay down sacred medicine for the Cree woman who died. Quote, I was praying that she was happy, that she was in a better place, end quote, Mona said, holding back tears. I hope they find out who is responsible and that justice can be done for her. We've experienced a lot of anger, a lot of pain, and a lot of frustration, end quote. A Vancouver Police Department spokesperson told CBC News that, quote, Ashley's case was examined and thoroughly investigated by the VPD Homicide Unit with our major crime section. The investigation has examined and reviewed at several levels, but there is no evidence to show her death to be suspicious, end quote. The coroner's report states that Ashley died as a consequence of fall from a height with cocaine and ethanol intoxication listed as other significant contributing factors. 
Carol Martin was one of the first to the scene after death. After Machiskanik's death, quote, I ran over to her right after she fell, and she was staring straight up, just gasping her last breaths. I was totally traumatized, and I've worked down here for 15 years, states Carol Martin. Whoever threw Ashley out chose the busiest time when the alley was full of people buying drugs to make a point. Don't rip us off, Gladys concluded. According to a journalist Angela Sterrett's interview with Ashley's cousin Mona Woodward in 2010, quote, the Vancouver Police Board posted a $10,000 reward for information proved conclusively the circumstances surrounding Ashley's death, but that reward expired in the fall of 2012 after what was called an, an exhaustive investigation and the Vancouver Police Department deemed her death not suspicious, end quote. Area residents and community leaders are convinced that Ashley did not take her own life. A downtown Eastside activist said she knows of six women in the drug-ridden community who have been thrown out of windows as punishment by drug dealers. She was just one of several women to be killed or punished in a highly public way by drug dealers who want to send a message to women about what will happen to them if they don't pay off their drug debts. As stated on the Batters Women's Support Service website, quote, women get their heads shaved for a $30 drug debt. They're killed for $50, said Carol Martin of the Downtown Eastside Women's Center. Angela Marie McDougall, Executive Director of Better Women's Support Services is calling on the Vancouver Police Department to join activists in working to put an end to the violence. Quote, the rapes and the beatings are standard punishments by drug dealers. What is a little bit unusual are women's heads being shaved and women coming out of windows. End quote. McDougall said she doesn't know who killed Machiskanik, but people in the DTES are afraid to tell police investigating her death what they know. Ashley was part of the downtown Eastside DTES community. On Monday, October 4th, 2010, one month after Ashley's death, community members were participating in a memorial service for her. The community was frustrated by the response of the Vancouver Police Department and their statements about Ashley and her death. The members from the Women's Memorial March Committee marched to the police station to start a demonstration. The women demanded Ashley's case to be reopened and thought of as a murder, not a suicide. They also demanded a meeting with Chief Constable Jim Chu, who was in a meeting and could not come out. McDougall was one of the three protesters arrested Monday night after refusing to leave the VPD's Main Street headquarters at the end of a vigil and march. She was released after five hours and faces a charge of assault by trespassing. The next day, Chief Constable Jim Chu invited the Women's Memorial March Committee to meet with him. The members presented the Vancouver Police Department with a letter outlining their concerns, demanding the charges against the protesters to be dropped. They wanted to stress to Chief Constable Jim Chu that First Nations women are predominantly the victims in their community. Women are being thrown out of windows, 
missing fingers, and wearing wigs because their heads have been shaved, stated Gladys Roddick, organizer of the annual Walk for Justice in support of missing and murdered women in Vancouver and along the Highway of Tears. Leaders of the East Side have said that drug dealers are able to kill or maim women with liberty because without witnesses coming forward, Vancouver police write their deaths off as a drug overdose or a suicide. Marlene George of the Carnegie Center, who led a Sisters in Spirit march to the spot where Machiskanik died, agreed, quote, There's a code of silence down here. The worst thing you can be is a rat. It is very difficult to get the police to speak out and to acknowledge that drug dealers are behind these events, end quote. According to Sister Watch program, Chief Constable Chu recognized the value of the meetings. Members of the DTES community and the police agreed to continue meeting at a joint table to discuss issues relevant to the safety of women to this day. Nadine Kelly Machiskanik. Nadine was 29 years old, and from what Lisa M. had identified, Ashley and Nadine are not related. Was born on May 7, 1985, a mother of four, and Machiskanik was originally from the Kawakatos First Nation in Saskatchewan. The Kawakatos Reserve is located southeast Saskatchewan near Raymore, Quinton, and Panicky. It covers 8,248 hectares and has a population of 2,210 people with over a thousand living on reserve. The signing of Treaty 4 in 1874 led to the formation of the Kawakatos First Nation. Prior to this, they were part of the Touchwood Hills people, which also includes the Gordons, Moskowikwan, and the Daystar Bands. These four groups are now collectively known as the Touchwood Agency Tribal Chiefs, TATC, including Fishing Lake Band. On the morning of January 10th, 2015, tragedy struck at Regina's Delta Hotel when the body of Nadine Machiskanik was found at the bottom of a laundry chute. She died a few hours later in the hospital. A Regina Police Service spokesperson, Elizabeth Popowicz, said the police didn't come to the hotel or the hospital that morning because they weren't called. And according to the coroner's report, Nadine arrived at the hospital unconscious with cracked ribs early on a Saturday morning, but the coroner didn't call the police. The pathologist who examined Nadine's body a few days later said she had died from blunt force trauma to her head, neck, and trunk caused by the fall. Unfortunately, by then, any evidence that could have been gathered had already been cleaned up by hotel staff. This delay has left many unanswered questions surrounding this mysterious death, leaving friends and family to wonder what really happened that fateful day. A month after her death, the coroner concluded her death was an accident and Regina police closed the investigation. Despite the fact that the report concluded that Nadine was too intoxicated to get into the laundry chute on her own. When Machiskanik died, the Regina Police Service has tasked with delivering samples from the autopsy to a lab for toxicological testing. However, due to a mix-up, 
The samples sat in a storage for six months before being delivered. Constable Keith Malcolm was part of the team that received the samples and admitted there had been an error in communication between him and his colleague. This lapse of time meant that valuable evidence may have been lost or contaminated because making it difficult to determine exactly what caused McChiskanik's death. The incident has raised questions about how well police are trained to handle such sensitive material and whether protocols need to be updated or improved upon going forward. An earlier version of the autopsy, which the family thinks they were given accidentally, Saskatchewan forensic pathologist Sean Latham wrote that, quote, the levels of the drugs present would make it unlikely that she would have been able to climb into the laundry chute on her own, end quote. And in the final autopsy report, the Saskatchewan office of the chief coroner relied on the opinion of Dr. Graham R. Jones and an Albertan toxicologist who said he did not believe, quote, that there is sufficient evidence to conclude that she would have been capable of climbing into the laundry chute without assistance, end quote. Tony Merchant, the lawyer for Nadine's family said, the police should have been believing this is probably a homicide. It's not an accident, end quote. He said that at every stage, the investigation was deeply flawed. Quote, everything seems to indicate that this was a slow walk, uninterested investigation. They've closed the investigation and said, we have determined there's no foul play. When anybody looking at the facts would say all the indications are foul play, end quote. Saskatchewan's chief coroner, Kent Stewart, said that because no one told the coroner on duty how and where Nadine's body was found, he said normally that sort of information would be passed on by police. Quote, I would have anticipated a 911 call aside from the ambulance showing up. My understanding is that generally police show up at the same time too, said Stewart. I don't think that that happened in this particular circumstance, end quote. The manner of death was considered undetermined. I think that raises more questions about my niece and how she died. And I don't feel like I'm going to stop pressing for answers until I get those answers addressed into how she died. Because at this point, it's undetermined. And I think that a lot of that has to do with how the investigation was handled. And I'm always going to come back to that because we have a lot of key information that could have been, from the beginning, addressed, and and like I said, we had the, we had we had we had originally went with the undetermined. We would not have been through this whole process had there not been a second autopsy report that stated accidental. So, I think that this just bring that just this just raises more questions into how. Her investigation was handled as a as an Aboriginal woman, and I feel like I just I'm in shock right now. But the question on how Nadine even got in the chute only through a hatch just 53 centimeters, which is a little over 20 inches wide. Some other sources measure the chute to be approximately 45 centimeters high and wide, 
which is about 17.71 inches. Ms. Popovich also states that a year went by before police attempted to track down two men who were shown on a surveillance video getting on an elevator with Nadine just minutes before her death. The family's lawyer, Mr. Mushan, called this oversight a stunning and inexcusable oversight. He continued, quote, It was obvious to look for those two men. The first thing you would do, even if you've only ever watched television, is look at the surveillance tapes. You don't have to go to a police school to be taught that, end quote. Ms. Popovich couldn't explain the delay in searching for the men, but said police were likely, quote-unquote, busy following up on other leads, and that officers don't have the ability to establish a moratorium on all other crime in the city. So there's a limit to the resources you can put on it, end quote. Sergeant Troy Davis and his partner were determined to get to the bottom of the mysterious death of Machiskanik. As part of their investigation, they requested a list of all guests who stayed at the hotel on the night she died. This was important because surveillance footage showed Machiskanik entering an elevator with two unidentified men moments before her fatal fall. Despite their efforts, these men have yet to be identified and remain a mystery in this case. The coroner's report mentions that there were also two mysterious kids who were seen with Nadine on the hotel floor from which she fell. According to a review of the police investigation by the Public Complaints Commission, there was only one person staying on the floor that night. He told the police that an intoxicated Aboriginal female matching Nadine's description, quote, had been yelling in the hallway of the 10th floor and was banging on doors, including his, end quote. He said she was yelling about a fire and someone had also pulled the fire alarm on the door. The coroner adds a puzzling detail indicating that the witness, quote, unquote, saw two kids behind her. No one has any idea who these kids are or why they were behind her. Mr. Mershon said, Despite the mistakes, delays, and lack of diligence, police have shut down the investigation and there's nothing the family can do about it. Machiskanik's aunt, Dolores Stevenson, had earlier told the police, meaning she still had many unanswered questions. Quote, we are tired of being juggled around. Given the profile and lingering questions in this case, including the conflicting autopsy reports, we think that it's time for Regina Police Services to sit down with myself and my mother and the people that are raising Nadine's children, end quote. This is Noah Evanchuk. He's a lawyer in Regina and has been counsel for the family of Nadine Machiskanik. He's also in constant contact with Dolores Stevenson. What was your reaction when you heard that this case had been turned over to the RCMP? Well, I guess the first, uh, my first reaction was relief for Dolores. Um, this is a, a very impressive young woman who's fought tooth and nail to make sure the memory of one of her family members um, has been honored uh, by keeping up um, constant pressure to make sure we get to this day and it's a this is a huge victory for Dolores Stevenson I'm very proud for her 
It's unusual for the RCMP to take a case over and look at it, and they're calling it a review, not a reinvestigation. Why do you think this case was passed over to the RCMP? Well, I think we can look first off, uh, without digging into anything, uh, our, our new police chief has, it, has admitted on the record that mistakes were made in the investigation. And um, I'm hoping that a fresh set of eyes uh, will shed more light on, on what I think was raised at the inquest and the questions that are left outstanding. Because it's a review, what happens inside those parameters as opposed to reopening the case? The case is still closed in the eyes of the Regina Police Service. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a surprise because I, I, I'm not sure if it, maybe this is a communications issue or buzzwords that get bounced around between agencies, but um, I was left to believe, uh, and I think Ms. Stevenson was, that it wasn't uh, a closed case, but if that's the case, then that's disappointing. But I, I think given the material that we know in the public record, um, a review hopefully will lead to uh, a reinstitution of the, uh, uh, of the investigation itself and, and hopefully criminal charges. What has Dolores said to you about what she expects to have happen going forward? Well, I, I, I certainly would never want to speak for, um, for Dell. Uh, she is an incredibly articulate and intelligent woman. Um, I'm more here as support for her um, as her friend and counsel. Um, the role of my role as, as counsel uh, pretty much ended with the inquest, but I'm just here to, to bounce pro bono ideas off of it. Um, she doesn't need me to be the ad as an advocate. She is doing enough on her own. And I think um, you will see Dolores continue the pressure to ensure that justice is done for her family member. Winona Williams, Nadine's sister, isn't sure that Machiskanik's death or the tip line will change much for the women in the area. Quote, nobody wants to be involved because if you are found saying something, you will get jumped or you will get beat up. End quote. Williams said her sister's head was shaved in what she said was a random attack. Williams said there is little trust for the police, who don't seem to come as quickly when they're called to the DTES community as they would if they were heading to another neighborhood. She tells the people in the neighborhood to ask for an ambulance when they're calling the police, quote, because, you know what, when you're requesting an ambulance, that means someone's hurt and police and paramedics will show up, end quote. Police held a town hall meeting in downtown Eastside specifically to talk about the violence against women in light of Machiskanik's death, but the event deteriorated into a litany of shouted concerns about policing. On Monday of December 6, 2010, Mayor Gregor Robertson and the Vancouver Police Department launched Sister Watch, a community program aimed at keeping women and downtown Eastside safe. Sister Watch was previously called the Guardian Project. It features a telephone hotline where individuals can call in to report cases of violence against women. Sister Watch has set up tip line, created website, and hold town hall meetings in a neighborhood where dozens of women have disappeared over the years, including the victims of a serial killer named Robert Picton. The remains or the DNA of 33 women who had disappeared from the neighborhood were found on Picton's pig farm in Port Coquitlam, BC. He was convicted of killing six women and a public inquiry has been announced to examine the failed police investigation that allowed Picton to continue killing.
Verna May Seymour, a 50-year-old woman from Wabigon First Nation. Wabigon First Nation is a Salto First Nation band government located in Kenora District of Northwestern Ontario, Canada, with an on-reserve population of 175 and a registered population of 533 people. Wabigon has been part of the local community for many years. The Anishinaabemon name for this community translates to where the rivers meet, and it was officially confirmed by the Ontario government in 1915. Members are proud to carry on traditions that have been passed down from generations to generations, while also embracing new opportunities that come their way. In 1987, those living on the eastern portion of the reserve changed its name to Wabigon Lake Ojibwe Nation. Verna May was a mother of five children, Marcel, Sean, Monique, Jesse, and Reggie. She was also a grandmother and had a brother named Cecil. Verna May's hobbies were doing crossword puzzles, sudoku, and listening to country music. She enjoyed spending time with her many friends, reading, writing, and banak making. She worked at the Empress Hotel as a waitress and was a customer service rep at the Vancouver Bottle Depot. Like the life of Verna May Samar, her mother Tina died when she was young. She was taken from her father Charles into children's aid where she was abused. She had a short-lived marriage, lost a son, and abused drugs and alcohol until she died mysteriously on Friday, September 16, 2011, after falling off the notorious Regent Hotel in Vancouver's troubled downtown east side. The same hotel almost one year to the day of Ashley Machiskanek's tragic death. The mother of five was in her hotel suite with her boyfriend that night. According to Vancouver police, her death was initially ruled suspicious by police, but it was later determined that no foul play was involved. Jesse Ranville, Verna's youngest son, says one person disputed several eyewitness accounts, and that was enough for police to say it was not suspicious. Constable John McGinnis said many people called 911 after Verna's body was discovered on the sidewalk. Police interviewed numerous witnesses, including Verna's longtime boyfriend, who she had a history of domestic violence with, was in the room when she fell. The report noted Vancouver police, quote, will reopen the case if any new evidence is obtained, end quote. If you have any information regarding the deaths of Verna Seymour, Ashley Machiskanik, or Nadine Machiskanik, please contact the Vancouver Police Department at 604-717-3321. In 2016, CBC News analyzed 32 deaths and two disappearances of Indigenous girls and women across Canada. In cases where authorities ruled there was no foul play involved, that investigations revealed that 10 had unexplained injuries, 
Though officials maintained those injuries did not contribute to their deaths. 17 were involved in domestic and family violence, where families insist there was a clear suspect. Six were found nude or partially clothed in suspicious or anomalous circumstances. In 31 of the cases, a person of interest was identified at some stage either by police or family members. In five of the cases, coroner's or inquest findings appear to conflict with police determinations. In 25 of the 34 cases, families say they felt racism and assumptions about the women and their lifestyles hampered the investigation. A group of Vancouver's downtown Eastside says Indigenous women need to be included in leadership and decision-making positions in governments and other groups of violence against women if violence against women is going to stop. Here are some possible solutions. It's one of the 35 key recommendations made in the Red Women Rising Indigenous Women Survivors, a new report of an, on Indigenous women survivors in Vancouver's downtown Eastside was released during a news conference in Vancouver, BC on Wednesday, April 3rd of 2019. In this report, based on input from 113 Indigenous and 15 non-Indigenous local women, provides a unique insight into the issues facing communities in the downtown Eastside. The authors of the report emphasize that it must be seen within its wider context, that our colonization across these lands. The main recommendation that all 128 collaborators and participants were unanimous on was for active Indigenous women leadership to be included at all levels of decision-making. This is an important step towards achieving greater representation and equality in our communities. We hope that this episode will help create positive change by highlighting how Indigenous women can take ownership over their own lives, as well as providing a guidance for policymakers to ensure their voices are heard when decisions are being made about their community. And in order to ensure the safety and well-being of our Indigenous women, a number of recommendations have also been put forward. These include providing safe housing for all Indigenous women on and off reserve, ending child apprehensions, and creating legislative reform that will protect the rights of Indigenous women. In additionally, an Indigenous Women's Center should be established in the downtown east side that is run by and for women. This center would provide essential services such as mental health support, education programs, job training opportunities, and more. By implementing these recommendations, requested for full adoption to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. These women were warriors. They faced life head-on and never gave up, even when tragedy seemed to follow them everywhere they went. Despite the heartache and pain that comes with a living, a life of struggle, these women persevered through it all with dignity and grace. They are an inspiration to us all, reminding us that no matter how dark things may seem, we can keep 
going if we have the strength within ourselves to do so. Even when our loved ones suffer similar fates, we must remember that hope is still alive. We owe it to these brave women to carry on in their memory and honor their courage by never giving up in the face of adversity. Please join me on May 5th to stand and support hashtag MMIWG2S and hashtag RedDress. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to come back next week for our discussion of true crime stories. Until then, this is Jasmine Castillo. We are voiceless no more. This podcast was created, produced, recorded, and edited by Jasmine Castillo. Researched by Mary Weathers, Lisa M., Laura Rodriguez, and Jasmine Castillo.